0: My name is Jim Fleming and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Well, good morning and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you're able to be with us this morning. I see several of you have already already joined and uh, glad to have you with us this morning so today's lesson, we're in Mark chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, find Mark chapter 9. I believe we'll be in Mark's gospel the entire time this morning. I don't think we'll get far enough into uh, this last section of Mark chapter 9 that we'll head into the Old Testament for a minute. But Mark chapter 9. So I'll say good morning to some folks here. So we've got, uh, hey, Mom, good morning. Uh, The Millers and the Janikas are there in room 206. Hey guys, good morning. Uh, Amy Velosen, hey, good morning. The Barbers are here. The Johnsons are here. The McClure's are here. Fantastic, guys. Good to have you guys with us this morning. Thanks for being here. So we start our lessons each week with uh, a very set uh, schedule, a very set uh, process. So we'll ask the question that we ask each week, what is God doing in you? through His Word, from the portion of Mark we've studied so far. And uh, for me, especially given this past week uh, and the events that have happened here in America this past week, uh, just the, the reality of the, the applicability and the relatability and the um, appropriate uh, teaching that Jesus has for His disciples 2,000 years ago is still applicable for us today. Um, And I've got the same uh, shirt on that I had last week. Uh, We'll talk about that again a little bit this week and uh, Lord willing next week as well as we look to finish up this text. But uh, let's read through Mark chapter 9 and then we'll jump in looking at this last section, verses 42 uh, through 50. So Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, And he answered them, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So I want us to take just a moment and look at the structure of Mark chapter 9. So we start off with the transfiguration. And Jesus again communicates uh, that that the Son of Man, that he was going to rise from the dead... Jesus heals the boy with an unclean spirit, giving the disciples a visual picture of what rising from the dead actually looks like. In verse 30, he teaches them again, that the Son of Man, that he will be killed uh, at the hands uh, of men. And after he's killed, in three days he will rise. And then the disciples just go into blinder mode, right? And get hyper-focused on themselves and who is the greatest. Jesus begins to teach them about who the greatest is, and if you read the text understanding who the greatest actually is, it's Christ, then he is pointing them to himself and chastising them for arguing amongst themselves. Then we come to John. John asks a question, and it's, it's almost as if he's redirecting, right? Because the disciples have figured out, like, oh, this was not good. I think he's talking to us. So John redirects or tries to redirect Jesus to another topic. And what does Jesus do in verse 42? He redirects back and talks about the little one that Jesus placed in the midst of them. Why did Jesus place a little one in the midst of them? To teach them about their sin of arguing over who was the greatest. All right, so this is a very connected passage, 42 through 50, to what has gone on before. So last week we looked at, uh, verses 42 and almost to the end of verse 43, uh, I actually uh, left us in a, a tough spot. So we've got uh, the Arnolds and the other Arnolds. Fantastic. Many more folks in room 206. Excellent. Good deal. I actually got a picture of you guys uh, last week or the week before, and it was uh, very encouraging. So thank you for, uh, for that. But I want you to see, there's, there's a couple of things, and we'll talk about this as we go through this text, a little bit uh, today and a little bit, uh, Lord willing, next week as well. But last week I started with three big questions about this text. And you really want to have an answer for these three questions before you get into this text. Otherwise, you, you can really pinball around theologically and just not be consistent at all. So the first big question is, is this text to be taken literally? So are we to cut off body parts if they, quote unquote, cause us to sin? The answer is obviously not, right? This would violate a host of Old Testament laws that the Jews were under here. Uh, Jesus is not teaching them to mutilate their bodies, right? That is, it is never something that uh, God commands his children to do to mutilate uh, the human body. This is the body that's made in the image of God. We certainly would not want to desecrate that in any way. So, second question is Are verses 42 through 48 connected to what is before? I think I just pointed to you in the text, that there are textual evidences for that. And then the third question, which I think we'll probably get to next week, uh, are 49 and 50 connected to what was before. And I, I think the first word in verse 49 definitively connects it with uh, the text before. So we'll, uh, I would argue that this is not to be taken literally, the cutting off of body parts, and that this is a single connected thought that Jesus is doing, despite the fact that John misdirects. Uh, So I don't know if any of you have ever taught, but you can have students who intentionally and unintentionally try to get the teacher off of a specific topic. I've I've had this happen uh, dozens and dozens of times in the years that I've been teaching. And sometimes it's funny, because it's 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 an awareness, the student's not really understanding what's going on and kind of where we're headed. And sometimes it's it's sad because the student does understand what's going on and is convicted of sin and wants to redirect because, quite frankly, conviction doesn't feel great. This is not one of those things you wake up in the morning and you're like, "I'd love to feel convicted all day long today." It's like not. Really, right? <laughs> While well, it is good for us, it's an act of God's mercy and kindness. It is not the greatest feeling that mankind has ever known. So, uh, back to the text here. So, verse forty-two: uh, Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin—and I talked last week about this word for causes to sin. It's really one word. That's why you don't have a parenthetical after the or bracket after the word sin in verse uh, forty-two in your handout. Uh, and. Uh, it's, it's just one word, but it's, it would be super awkward if we translated this exactly word for word in the Greek because the sentence structure just wouldn't work. So whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who believe in me, and this word believe is a present active participle. So this is, this is someone who is old enough to have established faith that is a habit in uh, his or her life. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great, or we talked about this donkey-sized millstone, Were hung around his neck, and were thrown into the sea. So it would be better if someone who caused a little one to sin were already dead. Because this is a, um, the tenses here indicate that this would be person would be already dead. And I believe verse forty three is connected to forty two. If your hand causes you to sin, uh, cut it off. This is an active imperative that I think that we are obligated not to obey. Right? This is not a literal obedience that God is calling us to here. Uh, it is better, so it is, present tense, better for you to enter life, and this would be the life after the life that we are living now, crippled than with two hands to go, and this to go is to, to hold onto. Uh, it's a present act participle. This is a, the habit of this, to go to hell. And last week we ended with, uh, this particular word, we talked about how this was the word Gehenna. Uh, this was a pit outside, is a, a section of town right outside of uh, Jerusalem, right outside the gates. This is where you would dump your garbage. This is where you would dump uh, dead bodies uh, that weren't claimed, they didn't have a family. Uh, this was a place where the fire really never died. This was a place covered in maggots and worms. This was a place that smelled bad. This was, a, this was not the place you'd go and hang out, right? And some of you might have thought last week when I talked about garbage, we had this conversation in our house after the lesson was over last week that, I mean, how, how big was this place, right? I mean, if you've got this whole city, all their garbage is going here, well, roll it back a little bit, right? I mean, my family, we have a, a garbage can, right? All those plastic garbage cans, the city of Chattanooga has, uh, size, amount of garbage every week that comes out of our house. What? Well, I don't know that that was exactly the case for a first century Jewish family. The actual amount of things that they're going to throw away and never use again, I would argue would be shockingly smaller than our weekly amount of garbage that we would have, right? They, they didn't have uh, the plastics. They didn't have the papers. They didn't have all this 14 things are packaged inside 14 other things. I mean, it's just like Russian nesting dolls when you buy some products sometimes, right? Right. So that the volume here would not have been this, well, it was as big as the city of Jerusalem. Not, not really. And they burned it constantly, right? So you're constantly going to be kind of breaking this stuff down. But it was not a fun place to go <clears throat> and to be. So rather uh, enter, uh, it'd be better for you to enter life crippled and then with two hands to go to hell. And I left you off with hell last week. To the unquenchable fire. Um, so I told you last week we talked about asbestos. Asbestos is actually the Greek word for unquenchable. Now, my mom is on the, uh, uh, the lesson this morning. So, mom, you know where I'm going to go with this, right? I'm going to talk about asbestos for a minute. <clears throat> so we grew up poor. Uh, not destitute poor, but quite poor. And uh, the house that we lived in was... Uh, so the first house that we lived in... The first house that you know, was like a, a nice house... Uh, My parents built a a log cabin and uh, it burned to the ground, right? Burned to the ground, it's gone. So this was uh, traumatic financially uh, in a lot of different ways. We moved to a different location and the the new location was a a 100-year-old home that had not been kept up very well and the original builder uh, did not use, uh, we'll say, stellar building materials and building practices. And, uh, and one of the things in a, in a house that was built 140 years ago, it's crazy. Uh, one of the things that you had to fear was fire. You feared fire. Like this is a really bad thing because there wasn't a way to quickly notify the fire department. And right? even if there was, a, I don't know if there was a fire department 140 years ago, right? But uh, there wasn't a way to quickly notify them that they should come and bring uh, materials to help put out a fire. So you would build your house with as, many, uh, uh, with as many materials that wouldn't burn as possible in it. And at some point along the way, somebody put asbestos shingles on the side of this house. And a- as a curious boy growing up, uh, I-, I was not a kid who lived outside, but uh, when I would go outside, I liked to explore things and examine things and all kinds of different stuff. And uh, asbestos shingles over time get very brittle and they sometimes break. And we had lots of trees around our house, so limbs would fall off. They'd run up against the house, a little piece would crack off, whatever. So these little pieces that would crack off, I would set on a rock, and I'd get a BB gun, and I'd shoot them. And I always really enjoyed watching the little puff of smoke that would happen <laughs> after you shot an asbestos shingle, and, not reali- and I'd run over and look at it, not realizing that that's asbestos, and probably for a kid with asthma, not the greatest thing in the world to be breathing. Now, this this was not a, I'm not eating this stuff. I'm not breathing this every day. I don't think I got a toxic amount. Um, but this is a word that resonates deeply with me with this idea of, you know, this is something that is associated with old. It's something associated with it won't burn. And I don't know if you ever tried to burn an asbestos shingle, but you, you can try. It's just going to smoke. Smells awful. Looks awful. Not a cool thing. But the thing just won't burn. So... This unquenchable fire. So, this is an unextinguished fire. Think about that. I don't know if you've ever been around fire, but I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories is associated with, you know, that house burning down. And uh, I remember uh, thinking through, like, well, what happened to the stuff that was there? And I remember walking through the ashes with my dad, and we would find a couple of things here and there. It's like, I, I think I recognize that. But I, the idea of an unquenchable fire something that never stops, something that destroys and destroys and destroys and destroys and brings anguish and pain. Like I'm looking at you guys right now in front of my uh, bookshelf and right over there is our fireplace. And the builder of this home took intense care to make sure that if we were going to bring fire inside our home, it was fully enclosed it was safe. It, there was a way to shut it off quickly. Uh, this is a dangerous thing, this concept of unquenchable fire. So I don't want us to miss and just like, oh, yeah, yeah, hell's hot and it burns. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. So better to go to, uh, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Now, there is a footnote in the ESV, uh, footnote I there, right before verse 45 starts. And, uh, you'll notice if you, if you were to count the verses between verses 42 through 50, we would expect there to be nine verses, right? So 50 minus 42 plus one is nine, counting inclusive. You've actually only got seven verses in the ESV because verses 44 that are found in the King James and other, uh, older translations and 46 have some verses that are identical basically to verse 48 that I would argue, and manuscript evidence would argue, really weren't present in the earliest manuscripts. Now, if if you step back and look at the structure of verses 42 through 47, 42 through 48, uh, you'll see a a parallelism, right? If your hand offends, then cut it off because it's Better to do that than to go to hell. If your foot offends, then cut it off because it's better to do that than go to hell. If your if your um, sorry hand foot eye offends, then pluck it out. It's better to do that than to go to hell. You you could very easily see that a scribe is trying to insert and assist God's word, which is just never a good idea. It's it's actually one of the reasons that when I read the 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 chapter at the beginning of a lesson, I don't make commentary as we're going through it. I just read the text all the way through because I don't want to be inserting my voice into God's Word. I just want to let God's Word stand. So sometimes when you see these very uh, parallel passages, it is tempting to include verses that that show up elsewhere but weren't in the actual original. So that's what happened if you're wondering, uh, where's verse 44 Uh, Where's verse 46 in the ESV? Oh my goodness, there's a conspiracy. uh, God's word has been tampered with here. Uh, I would actually say that God's word has very likely been tampered with by adding verses 44 and 46. Uh, But I just want you to be aware of the gap between 43 and 45. All right, it's been a minute since I looked down. So, sorry. So we've got... uh, A New or young Christian, as well as a young, yes, that is a another uh, definition of that particular word. Uh, I will tell you that, um, used in this context, it is very likely actually just a, a small child, but just from the context of the word. So, all right, verse 45 uh, and if so, we're connected again, and if your foot causes you to sin, and I, I touched on this very briefly last week, but please understand your hand can't cause you to sin, your foot can't cause you to sin, your eye can't cause you to sin. All the things, things are outward manifestations of something that is a heart problem, right? So if your uh, foot causes you to sin, uh, cut it off. So again, we've got another active imperative. Um, this is a, uh, it is better, another indicative. It is better right now for you to enter life lame, then with uh, two feet to be thrown into hell. Then with two feet to be thrown. And again, this to be is to this present active participle, this continuous experience of being in hell uh, lame. Verse 47. So again, skipping over 46 that's not present in the ESV or the originals. Uh, and if your eye, uh, so I. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word because I don't do uh, P-H-T-H as well. I don't want to spit on all of my technology here. Um, And if your eye causes you to sin, uh, ekbalo, tear it out, another active imperative, uh, it is better for you to enter. Now, there's a shift here, right? Because in the first two, you talked about enter life. Right? This is enter the kingdom of God with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So there's a shift here. So you might be thinking, like, why is the shift here? Good question. Uh, th- th- there is kingdom language in Mark's gospel. Uh, we will, in a couple of chapters, go back and really stop and look at all of the kingdom language up to this point, Because the kingdom needs a king, and Jesus is slowly revealing himself in Mark's gospel to be the king. So it it becomes more and more significant as you move through Mark's gospel, but this is a key word in Mark's gospel. So uh, the kingdom of God with uh, one eye, mono, the word I can't pronounce, uh, than with two eyes to be again this present active participle thrown into hell. So a, a couple of things I want to couple of things I want to address here real quick about uh, this concept of hell. When Jesus talks about it here in this spot, it is a present active participle. It is a ongoing habitual thing. It is not a Temporary punishment. It is not a temporary pain. It is not a temporary problem. It is a habit that continues, and that is scary. Like we don't, we don't talk a lot about hell much anymore. We talk a lot about Jesus loved, Jesus mercy, God's grace. Those are wonderful things, uh, but there is a reality to the universe that sin will be dealt with, and it is either dealt with through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his finished sacrifice on the cross, which is a beautiful gift that he offers to all, or it is dealt with with the eternal conscious punishment of the lost. And there's, there's not another option. It's not like, yeah, well, but there's a third. No, 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 no. Either Jesus takes the punishment or you do. That's it. It's only two options, right? And it's Jesus takes the punishment once and for all, because only God could take that much and deal with it or you take it and deal with it forever because you're not God. Right? So there's a tremendous amount of theology around hell that Jesus is actually teaching us here. And then we get to verse 48. Oh, dadgummit, we are going to go outside of, I did not think we would get to 48 today. We went much quicker through this than I thought. Um, So you're gonna need to go to Isaiah. So let's go to Isaiah. Uh, Actually, it's probably easier to go to Jeremiah and then go left one page because we're gonna be the very last part of Isaiah. So you want to find Jeremiah, especially if you have um, an electronic Bible, just go to Jeremiah one and then push the left button and it'll push over into um, the very last bit of Isaiah. So if you're looking at Isaiah chapter 66, Isaiah chapter 66, last chapter in Isaiah. And if you've, if you've ever, I don't know if you've read Isaiah recently, uh, but it is, it is not necessarily a warm and fuzzy read that you will walk away from uh, feeling wonderful about yourself as a human being. And I mean, it is, there's some serious, serious language in uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy. <clears throat> so if you look at the beginning of Isaiah 66, uh, the ESV header talks about the humble and contrite spirit. Uh, verse 7 is the rejoice with Jerusalem. Uh, verse 15 starts this last little section on final judgment and the glory of the Lord. So let's read a couple of verses to kind of get the flavor of what's going on. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So there is a there's a vengeance-taking aspect. There is a a justice-delivering aspect to what is going on here. Verse 17 Then those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination abomination in mice. Shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. and I will and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Baal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. These are things going out from Israel. And they shall bring all your brothers and from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. This is actually really exciting. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Here you go. And in this moment of all flesh worshiping the Lord, verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, I need you to remember what I've taught us many times around when Jews quote the Old Testament. Many times they're referring to the text itself, but very often they're referring to what comes just after that text. And if you look at verse 48 in Mark chapter 9, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and then you flip back and look at verse uh, 24 in Jeremiah 66, for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, but there's more in Jeremiah 66. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, right? This is not a happy, happy thing. Jesus is making a reference here that where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, he wants the disciples to also hear this next part of Isaiah 66 and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Yeah, absolutely. This is not good. This is really bad. Everybody who looks at this scene looks at it in horror and recognizes that this is the judgment and the vengeance and the justice of the Lord on display for his glory to declare his goodness and his holiness. He has done these things. And we look at it and we go, that's awful. Like That's like, what in the world? Yeah, we have a wildly, shockingly misplaced view of the holiness of God. It is unbelievably distinct from anything else in creation. And Jesus talks about this here in 48. Where their worm, this is the the maggot, does not die, which would be true of... Gehenna, right outside the city of Jerusalem. And the fire is not quenched, right? These fires burn continuously. But this is about that, right? Gehenna is about hell. It's not just about there's garbage burning outside the city. It's about the glory and the justice and the vengeance of the Lord. And what has happened earlier in Mark chapter 9? We just saw Jesus transfigured intensely white as no one on earth could bleach his clothes. We saw a glimpse of the glory of God. And now we see a glimpse of what happens when you reject the glory of God. See, Jesus is not just a master teacher. He's not just a master storyteller. He's not just a master sequencer of things. He is connecting things here across hundreds of years. And it is mind- Blowingly incredible how he does it. It's absolutely, absolutely unbelievable. All right, so uh, we could start with verse forty-nine. Actually, we'll start with verse forty-nine. Just I will do the first word. Uh, the first word in verse forty-nine is "gar." Uh, this is the word for for assigning a reason. So, there to assign a reason to something is to connect a thought prior to the thing itself. Uh, One of the things that always makes me chuckle when I read through the commentaries is um, they're stretching and reaching and grasping to say something, anything new, right, to justify another book on this topic. And um, I was telling a a pagan friend of mine a couple of weeks ago that I had roughly 3,000 pages of literature to help me teach Mark's gospel. And she was like, but it's really short, isn't it? I said, yes, but there's a lot going on and it's really complicated. Uh, so this this word that Jesus uses here, for, uh, for everyone will be salted with fire, this word for is a assigning a reason. So there's a connectedness to what happens in 49, to what Jesus has just taught in 48. And he's just taught it in 48 because the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. And let me tell you, folks, when you have somebody who is relentlessly, ruthlessly consumed with their own greatness, That is a problem. And we see it all around, right? I mean, anywhere you turn on the TV or the internet, if you see somebody consumed with their own greatness. And it's tragic when we see it inside God's family. Here we see the disciples themselves argue amongst themselves, who is the greatest? No, 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 no. God, help us if we argue amongst ourselves, who is the greatest, who is the best, who is the most wonderful at anything? Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the most wonderful. At everything, there is no one like him. You read through Mark's gospel so far through chapter 9, and if you're not just utterly astounded at the incredible uniqueness of Jesus Christ, read it again (laughs) until you are. So we'll stop there for today. Uh, We'll pick up Lord Willing next week with uh, verse 49. And uh, just a couple of things as we uh, move to close our uh, lesson today. So if you've got any uh, prayer requests, I would love for you to engage, uh, uh, write those in the comments. Uh, we would love to pray for you. Uh, if you have uh, no prayer requests, I would love for you just to pray with somebody that's commented on one of these uh, things that we've talked about today. Uh, and then if you are able to go to Steward Heights Campus, the Facebook, the YouTube, the website later today for worship, uh, would strongly encourage you to be able to do that. Uh, and I'll leave you with just a, a, a real simple request. Uh, there are going to be, as there have been this past week, uh, myriad opportunities to wallow, to, um, to, uh, to exhibit the exact opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. So if, if you need some encouragement this week, uh, if you need something to, like, what should I be focused on? Just go read Galatians 5. Uh, remind ourselves of what the fruits of the Spirit are, remind ourselves of of ways to do this. How do we engage with the world in ways that reflect who our Father is and reflect who our Father isn't? So um, let's be thoughtful about how we engage because a lost and dying world who has the unrelenting, unremitting, unquenchable fires of hell are watching. So... Jesus be big. Grace and peace to you guys. Love you guys. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.